Um, let me this morning begin uh, by reading the text, and then uh, I want to pray before we begin. And the text this morning is Luke chapter 14, verses 15 to 24. The parable of the great feast. Hearing this, a man sitting at the table with Jesus exclaimed, What a blessing it will be to attend a banquet in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied with a story. A man had a great feast and sent out many invitations. When the banquet was ready, he sent his servant to tell the guests, Come, the banquet is ready. But they all began making excuses. One said, I have just bought a field and I must inspect it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have bought a pair, five pair of oxen and I want to try them out. Please excuse me. Another one, this is the winner to me. Another one said, I've now found a wife so I can't come. The servant returned and told his master what they had said, and his master was furious and said, Go quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And after the servant had done this, he said to his master, There is still room for more. So his master said, Go out into the country lanes and behind the hedges and urge anyone you find to come so that the house will be full. For none of those I first invited will get even the smallest taste of my banquet. Jesus, thank you that you are present here this morning. Thank you that um, I believe there's no accident for us being here. I believe, God, we're here by divine appointment. And as such, God, you intend to speak into our lives. And I pray that we would be like uh, Play-Doh, malleable, um, movable, workable. I pray that you would do your deepest work in our hearts and in our minds today so that when we consider your word, um, which the Bible explains about itself, that the word is living and powerful, may it be that today in us. Even as Steve mentioned, the, the many people facing challenges, may it be true of them as they listen to your word and as they... Um, embrace what you're speaking today. Thank you, Jesus, for the blessing of your presence again. I thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Have you ever, this is a rhetorical question, have you ever made an excuse for something? I really don't think there's anybody in the room that would say no, because we probably all have. I find that excuses come in handy when we simply don't want to do something. That's usually the basis for our excuses. We're trying to do so not to do something or to get out of doing something. Sometimes we even make excuses for other people. I want to read um, a few examples of this this morning. Um, the following excuses were written by parents to justify their child's absence from school. And their excuses, um, I include all of the errors in... Uh, writing and all those other things that you're going to hear that are a part of their excuses. So I'll begin with this one. My son is under a doctor's care and should not take PE today. Please execute him. Please excuse Lisa from being absent. She was sick and I had her shot. Dear school, please accuse John being absent on January 28th. January 29, 30, 31, 32, and also 33. 
That was the longest year. Please excuse Gloria from Jim today, spelled J-I-M. Please excuse Gloria from Jim today. She is administrating. I'm not explaining that. Please excuse Roland from P.E. for a few days. Yesterday, he fell out of a tree and misplaced his hip. John has been absent because he had two teeth taken out of his face. That sounds painful. Megan could not come to school today because she's been bothered with very close veins. Chris will not be in school. Cussie has an acre in his side. Please excuse Jimmy from being. It was his father's fault. <laughs> I feel so bad for Jimmy. <laughs> I really do. Because he's being. Please pray for... Please excuse Ray Friday from school because he has very loose vowels. Irving was absent yesterday because he missed the bust. This is probably the worst or the best one is the last one. Please excuse Tommy from being abs for being absent yesterday. He has diarrhea and his boots leak. <laughs> sorry, but that was funny. Okay, you... Now, get your mind off that stuff, okay? <laughs> Whew. Excuses. Our story today picks up where it left off last time with Jesus in the home of a Pharisee who is growing more antagonistic with Jesus as Jesus tries to teach him certain things that are significant um, from Jesus' perspective. And just Jesus has just given this host some tips on how to throw a meaningful party, tips that weren't welcomed nor appreciated. And he said this in uh, chapter 14, verses 12 to 14, when you throw a party, he's giving advice, again, that's unwelcomed, but he does it anyway. When you throw a party, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, your rich neighbors, for they will invite you back, and that will be your only reward. Some people would think, well, I'm good with that, though. I like the meal, and I like to be invited back, and I like to reciprocate. But instead, Jesus said, says, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. As I read those, I try to envision in my head what that would look like as they're coming into that party. A lot of dragging of the feet, a lot of people giving aid to make sure those people could actually be there. Then at the resurrection of the righteous, Jesus says, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. He's not impressed with the ones that go overboard to get invited back somewhere, just the ones that have nothing that they could ever do except say, thank you. So Jesus is telling this prominent and influential Pharisee to go against the flow even at his own party. He's basically saying to them, you've got it all wrong, you've got it backwards, you need to do it this way. The theme this morning is responding to the discouragement that arises when your plans fall through, or when something you've poured your heart into hasn't turned out as you hoped, or when your great expectations have generated little interest, less response, and no one showing up to what you had planned. What if it is your party, and your party is absolutely not coming together? It showed some promise maybe, but it's just not working. 
Worse, the ones who said they'd come to your party are bailing on you. And to add insult to injury, they're making lame excuses. Really lame excuses. If you had a few moments to think about it, you could think of situations like that where you've heard excuses or made them yourself. I don't know what you do with that. You could pout, you could whine, you could complain, you could be vindictive. It'd be fun to get even. I suppose you could unfriend them, take them off all your social media accounts. You could throw up your hands in disgust, or you could just throw something. You could do all kinds of things. Or, after all, it is your party, so you can even cry if you want to, but nobody is going to care, and it really won't help anyway. So what do you do? A number of years ago, I was planning a, uh, a 50th birthday party, uh, the keyword surprise, for Wanda. And I, cause I, and I did that because I hadn't learned my lesson from the 40th birthday party. I thought this would be different. And, and she's, she's a very smart woman. About two months in advance of uh, her birthday, she came up to me one day and she said, you're not planning anything for me on my birthday party, I hope. She kind of said it like that. So I, I got nervous right off the bat. And almost every week and then every day, the closer we got, she kept saying, if you do planning, are you planning anything for my party? And if you're going to do anything, invite people. If you're going to do any of that, I'm walking. Meaning she's not going to be home. So I had to really think about that until it was about three days before the party, and, and uh, she kind of looks me in the eye, and I get nervous when that happens. And her question was, that was a statement actually, uh, the statement was, I, I need you to tell me everything that you have planned. I want to know who's coming. The whole nine yards. I don't know where that phrase came from, but it fits. And I told her everything. And so the date comes, her birthday date. All these people, um, I can't remember how many I invited, but too many. And it was the day. And the day looked like this. I saw the people starting to drive into the driveway and into the court. It gets filled up with cars. And the first person comes to the door. Guess who answers the door? Wanda. She opens the door and says, Happy birthday! And I kind of standing back. I'm kind of back watching because I'm really nervous. And some people were actually upset that she wasn't surprised and that she knew in advance. I think some people took me off their book. They, they erased my name from everything. And so when you're planning a birthday party, be very careful how you plan your birthday party and why you do it. Because you've got to consider this big picture and that's the idea this morning. We need to go against the flow of indifference and apathy and making excuses and instead to aim for engagement. And I'm even t talking as a church. Aim at engagement and involvement and ultimately some kind of a kingdom investment that can have an impact. But it doesn't happen if we're not involved in the process. Last week, Jesus' last words in verses 14 and 15 were, at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those 
who could not repay you. Hearing this, a man sitting at the table with Jesus, he's pretty proud of being at the table with Jesus, if you remember last week, and he exclaimed, what a blessing it will be to attend a banquet in the kingdom of God. So he was kind of on the same page, but not. The man probably held one of the common views that only the Jews would be invited to the heavenly feast. And already we keep hearing about the blind and the lame and, and, and on and it goes. And it's just, it's making the party messy. Christ replies with a parable that pictures the inclusion of the Gentiles. He paints a picture of a party that is more a picture of a heavenly party than an earthly one. It's a party that includes people from every tribe and tongue and nation and people and every segment of society, every segment of society. The Baptists, the Brethren in Christ, the Anglicans, we're all going to get to heaven, and some of us are going to be looking at each other. It's like, I, I didn't expect you to be here. <laughs> and I think we'll probably meet some people um, who were whatever, uh, uh, they were missing a limb because they were in, wo in the war or whatever, and they're going to be whole, and we won't recognize some people because we've never seen that before. And what does that do when we think about what that could really, really look like? Because in reality, it's Jesus' party that he's talking about here, referring to the future, the big picture. And to me, there are four elements to this party story. The first on the screen is the great anticipation. I'll tell you when I planned both of those parties, the first one that really did go off pretty good, second one not so much, in both instances, I was so excited because I love surprising people. Because when you have something planned, you don't plan it, um, I'm going to do this to, so that it can be a bomb. You do it because you believe it's going to be exciting and people are going to weigh in on it and they're going to just leave the house and thank you and thank you and thank you for how, what it meant to them. Because it means something. It's, it's significant. So there's anticipation. So Jesus replied with this story. A man prepared a great feast and sent out many invitations. Imagine how excited he would be, how you would be, if you were in that place. Apparently, no one declined, literally declined the invitation. The man evidently has reason to expect that everybody he invited would actually show up. So it was off to a good start at the beginning. Verse 17 says, when the banquet was ready, he sent the servants to tell the guests, come, the banquet is ready. A bit of context, a bit of culture. Guests for a wedding um, of which these could last for a week. You, you need to have some coin to have these kinds of banquets and wedding feasts. The guests are pre-invited and given a general idea of the time of the wedding. And when all the preparations were finally ready, the pre-invited guests would, guests would be notified that the event could commence. Then, then they're sent out, the notifications are sent out, and these pre-invited guests in Jesus' parable literally refer to the people of Israel who from the Old Testament had been taught and taught and taught that the what main event we're looking for is the coming of the Messiah. And, and this was the feast context that was in their minds as they heard this. Second element, 
after the great anticipation is the great disappointment. Have you ever got your, your heart set on something um, recently and something changes and your plans are just out the window? And there, there's this very real, God wires us to be disappointed about things. And when things happen to us that we don't, we don't find the fulfillment of the anticipation and the excitement and the enthusiasm, it's a huge letdown on us. But we put on a brave face because we don't want anybody to know how terrible we feel at the, in the moment. So we say, you know, you, know you, must, you must be going through, this has got to be rough for you. No, I'm, I'm what? Fine. You know what fine stands for, right? Freaked out, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. And some disappointed people feel that way. And other people. We're not fine, but we want people to believe that we're fine. Because this great disappointment is huge, even to this guy. Verse 20, verses 18 to 20. They all, they all began making excuses. He's giving us a sampling of the ones that did. One said, I bought a field and I must inspect it. Please excuse me. Another, I've just bought five pair of oxen and I want to try them out. Please excuse me. Another one said, I have a wife, so I can't come. All the excuses smack of insincerity. Almost an insult to the host. One author says that one doesn't purpose property without first seeing it. And since the purchase was already complete, there was no urgency. The land would still be there after the banquet. Likewise, one does not purchase oxen first without testing them, just like you and I would never buy a car without getting in the, we in the car and driving it around to test it, to see if it's worth our while and not a piece of junk. The man who had recently married, biblically, was excused from business travel or serving in the military for one year after getting married, but there was no legitimate reason for newlyweds not to engage in this social event that they'd been invited to. I want to read you this verse in Deuteronomy 24, 5, because it's really cool. It's really good for the guys, not so much for the wife, I don't think. Luke, Deuteronomy 24, 5 says this, A newly married man must not be drafted into the army or be given any other official responsibilities. He must be free to spend one year at home bringing happiness to the wife he has married. Now, on, on the surface, doesn't that sound great? I envision all kind of women partway through saying, why don't you go for a walk? <laughs> Could you get a part-time job? Could you? Anything. I remember one, one, one time, I was this insecure young pastor, and I didn't have a lot of friends, so I was spending a lot of time with my wife, and I remember one day saying, Bill, you really need to get a friend. <laughs> I can't be your friend. You need to find a friend. Understand this. It's not that these people couldn't go to the banquet. These people wouldn't go to the banquet. They chose not to go to the banquet. And right after this really discouraging event, we see this third element, which is the great invitation. And this is this great, big, huge, big picture thing of what God is doing ever since um, time began and Jesus comes to planet Earth and does what he does to make it possible for everybody to know Jesus Christ and for everybody to have the choice 
to spend eternity um, in the presence of a loving God. Luke 14, 21 says, The servant returned and told his master what they had said, and the master was furious and said again, Go out quickly into the streets and the alleys of the town and invite the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Of all these people, the Pharisees tended to regard as unclean or unholy. The religious leaders condemned Jesus for associating with prostitutes and, and tax collectors, but Jesus included them anyway. Same as what he's doing here with this list. He disregarded those ungrateful people who disqualified themselves from the banquet by making their excuses and suggested that they would be replaced with those who had, uh, would actually appreciate the kind gesture. I imagine some of these people, the blind and the lame and all of the others that would be a part of that banquet after it was over, um, I can imagine some of those people had never been invited to be a part of anything because they were crippled, because they were a leper, because something about them was just not kosher. And maybe for the first time in their life, they got, if, if it was our generation, they got invited to be on a team, that they had permission to go and use a public swimming pool or whatever it would be, how the, it would have affected them to really process this. So this suggestion to include the poor, crippled, blind, and lame is so countercultural, so radical, so messy, so messy, yet Jesus takes it even further as he unpacks the story. And it leads to um, the fourth element, which is the great perspective. In Luke 22, or chapter 14, 22 and 23, it says this, After the servant had done this, that is, scour the streets and the valleys of the town, he reported to his master, there's still more room. So his master said, go out into the country lanes and behind the hedges and urge anyone you find, anyone you find, to come so that my house will be full. The country lanes and hedges uh, evidently represent um, the, the territory of the Gentiles. And Gentiles are non-Jewish people. So we could be looked upon as a Gentile. We don't like the flattering language of that, so we don't use it but we're non-Jews. And he says this, to, that we don't, this evidently represents the Gentile regions, but to urge and to, or to compel them to come does not mean by force or violence, but by earnest persuasion. I think sometimes in our attempts to evangelize, evangelize people, um, it's, it's too easy to scare people because hell is a potential endpoint. We try to scare people into the kingdom of heaven, and Jesus is not talking about this. He's talking about an approach that comes from love and compassion and care, from seeing people who they, as they really are and elevating them. Earnest persuasion. Why the urgency? Because there's urgency here, because he wants every seat in the house of the banquet hall to be full. And this is exactly what Jesus wants. He wants for heaven to be utterly filled with those who have come to faith to Jesus, who give him control of their lives and let Jesus lead them to wherever he wants to take them to do whatever he wants to do in their lives. I wonder, is that where you are? 
that before God you have said, God, take me and use me, do whatever you want with my life. You, you don't do that without thinking clearly and praying hard about what God wants you to do. But that's an invitation that's always outstanding to his people. Come, come, and come. There is a harsh reality in what the host says next in verse 24, especially if you're one of the ones that said, I'm not interested. None of those I first invited will get the smallest taste of my banquet. Those first invited are those who refused. And having rejected the invitation, Israel was shut out of the banquet. And in the New Testament sense, that's where the uh, apostles came in and they started evangelizing everywhere outside of Jerusalem. Anywhere where there was no church, they went to plant churches. Why? Because the Jews said, we don't need you, want you, etc. And so evangelism took on a different tone. It was a different focus. The master's judgment against, against these people was to seal their own decision, one author says. If you flip ahead to Luke 9, verse 62, Jesus uses a farm analogy. Some of you might have had association with farms over the years. Others, maybe not. But this farm analogy, um, I, I can relate to this. The words are these. No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. No one who looks back. I remember when I lived in Alberta, I uh, was on a dairy farm and had the privilege to uh, drive a beautiful big green tractor with a great big huge set of uh, discs behind me. And the, the one lesson, the most important lesson that I was taught was when you get in the field, he says, you pick a point. Could be a fence post. Uh, it can't be a tree because there are very few trees out there where I was. You find a spot, and you look at that spot, and you never take your eyes off that spot until you get to it and have to turn around. Never, never look back. Why? Why would you not look back if you're driving a tractor with an implement behind you? Because the furrow, whatever you're doing back there, is going to be crooked. And people on the highway are going to drive by and say, what a, what a lousy farmer that is. <laughs> You just, you have to have your eyes focused. You have to be focused on where you're going, not on where you're coming from. It's so easy, isn't it, to reminisce about where you come from, but it has no more influence over your life anymore than a can of beans, really. What matters is what's in front of us, not what's behind us. Don't look back. Look forward. Because, and I mentioned this a few weeks ago, in Luke 32, or 17, verse 32, there is a dire warning about looking back instead of moving forward with God, about um, not obeying God, but looking in a different direction. There are three sobering words that I mentioned some time ago. Remember Lot's wife. It's probably the most significant illustration of this truth in all of the Bible. Um, she had every reason to look forward because death was behind them because of the judgment of God and what he was doing with Sodom and Gomorrah and that whole valley. And Lot and the rest of the family were making excuses. We don't want to go to the mountains. It's too far. We Let's stop at this village and all that kind of stuff. But the wife, she just doesn't talk. 
she turns around. And if, 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 we, if it was in a movie now, we'd see the CG part where she just does this turn and her face and everything about her just turns white and granular. And I'm, I'm trying to wonder sometimes, what would her expression be? It would probably look like um, a massive amount of regret for looking back. And the rest of the family grieved her looking back because they lost a mother and aunt and all these things. So this is still about whether or not people will choose to enter the kingdom of God or make excuses for why they won't. Why they won't. Jesus is talking about the big picture, not just whether or not the first century Jews came to Christ in, in, in a local impact kind of way, but about a global impact where the millions who have and will yet come to the realization that the best life, the fullest life, the most rewarding life is life with Jesus, not life with me, myself, and I. Um, a lot of the world is a, tragically about me and myself and I, and it's not the most helpful. Romans eleven twenty five says this, and I will unpack this a little bit. Brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be uninformed about this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, the reference to mystery is the mystery that has really been tracked from the Old Testament about the coming of the Messiah um, to the fact that at one point it will not just be about the Jews anymore, but about all humanity will be welcomed into the kingdom of God based on their choice. So the mystery that he's talking about here um, refers to the fact that Jesus has come and now the Gentiles are welcomed into the fold. And he has just used in Romans an illustration of trees being grafted, to cut one limb off and put a, a grafted into another tree so that so the Gentiles and non-Jews can be grafted into the family of God through Jesus. And then he talks about the fullness of the Gentiles, which alludes to the full number of Gentiles who will be saved. And until that time, God is patiently waiting. I don't know what that looks like in this cosmic sense at all or what that really is like, but there is a day and an hour and a moment where nobody knows that Jesus is going to return. And that would be about the time that the fullness of the Gentiles, the non-Jews, have come into the kingdom of God. Nobody knows the day or the hour. If they do, um, I would step back from them a little bit <laughs> because nobody, not even Jesus, knows that time, that place. But it is about people coming to faith in Christ. So Jesus' thinking here is seen in Peter's words in 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you not wishing for anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Your brothers and sisters, your aunts and your uncles, your friends, your neighbors, Jesus has an agenda for all of those people. They all have an opportunity. Some of those people, God has given us the responsibility to be their primary witness. So this is significant to us. It's personal to us. The whole purpose of this parable of the great feast is to portray God's passion for everyone to be welcomed into this kingdom. Everybody. 
So when you're walking down the street, you, you don't, in God's eyes, have the luxury or the permission to not look at somebody because of what they look like or to ignore somebody because of what their life looks like. We don't have that luxury because God has not given us that perspective. We need to be encouraged and to encourage other people. Back in December, uh, the day after our Wednesday life group um, at our home church, uh, I got an email or a text from one of the guys in the group who is very thoughtful and encouraging. He's just amazing. I love going to church and uh, watching him because I know where he's normally seated, but if somebody comes in in a wheelchair or, or what, in whatever condition, he usually is it's almost like looking for not the normal ones. It's, it's the normal ones that are weird. But he's looking for ones that are different for some reason. And he just kind of slides in, sits down. And if they're in a wheelchair, he'll often kneel down. And he just starts a, a journey with them. And it's just beautiful to see. Beautiful to see. So I get an e a text from him. And it says this. Thursdays are always nicer after life group on Wednesday. Thank you. Thursdays are always nicer after life group. I wonder when you leave a conversation from somewhere to go somewhere else, whatever, is that the kind of sentiment they have of your encounter with them that day? It was so good to spend those times together, that few moments together. This week, I want to give you some suggestions for this week. And, and they're suggestions that kind of make us step out of our comfort zone sometimes. Um, I was listening to a show, this would have been almost a year ago now, and uh, one of the judges of one of these music shows, um, he, he had some advice. He's like a resident theologian. Lionel Richie's his name. And he said to this one girl who was horribly insecure in all these things, which they deal with, that seems to be the most that they deal with people. He looked at her and said, life begins at the end of your comfort zone. It's why I can stand here today, because I got over that. Life is beyond your comfort zone. And when you're willing to step out of your comfort zone to do what Jesus wants you to do, you have God himself behind you, backing you. So this week, be intentional about actually seeing the needs of others. Don't turn your head. Don't turn your eyes. Don't look up. Don't look at the ground. See the people that Jesus sees. Second of all, at the end of the week, some, take some time to reflect on what you have observed and learned about those in challenging life situations. And to make it a complete thing, Thirdly, make a decision in your heart and mind to make a difference in the life of someone different than you the next time the opportunity presents itself. Don't be sitting in your car or at the coffee table at Tim's um, waiting for someone else to take the initiative with you. Take the initiative to start wherever you think you need to start where God is leading you. Be encouraged and be an encouragement to other people who knows, maybe your kindness to that person will be used by God to bring her or him to faith in Jesus and to acceptance at this great feast that will be at the, in, the, in this bigger picture 
of the kingdom of God. Ask God this week what you could do. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you that is, it's powerful, it's alive, it's active. And I thank you, God, that your spirit is the active ingredient in your word. Thank you, Jesus, for teaching us, for giving us a sense of how you want to lead us as we walk forward as individuals and even as a church. And God, whatever happens, I pray that you would be the one to get all of the glory. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. We will see you next week.